The plot sallies forth, if sallies forth is the phrase I want, with a complexity that I shan't attempt to unravel for you, but what you need to know to be up to speed for basic comprehension of the second passage is that as Bertie arrives at Deverell House, he is late for dinner and he's pretending to be Gussie Finknottle. As far as the eye could reach, I found myself gazing on a surging sea of aunts. There were tall aunts, short aunts, stout aunts, thin aunts, and an aunt who was carrying on a conversation in a low voice to which nobody seemed to be paying the slightest attention. I was to learn later that this was Miss Emmeline Deverell's habitual practice, she being the aunt of whom Corky had spoken as the dotty one. From start to finish of every meal, she soliloquised, Shakespeare would have liked her. At the top of the table was a youngish bloke in a well-cut dinner jacket, which made me more than ever conscious of the travel-stained upholstery in which I had been forced to appear. E. Haddock, presumably. He was sitting next to a girl in white, so obviously the junior member of the bunch, that I deduced that here we had Catsmeet's Gertrude. Drinking her in, I could see how Catsmeet had got that way. The daughter of Dame Daphne, relict of the late P.B. Winkworth, was slim and blonde and fragile, in sharp contradistinction to her mother, whom I had now identified as the one on my left, a rugged, light heavyweight with a touch of Wallace Beery in her makeup. Her eyes were blue, her teeth pearly, and in other respects she had what it takes. I was quite able to follow Catsmeet's thought processes. According to his own statement, he had walked with this girl in an old garden on twilight evenings, with the birds singing sleepily in the shrubberies and the stars beginning to peep out. And no man of spirit could do that with a girl like this without going under the ether. I was musing on these two young hearts in springtime and speculating with a not unmanly touch of sentiment on their chances of spearing the happy ending when the subject of the concert came up. The conversation at the table up to this point had been pretty technical stuff, not easy for the stranger within the gates to get a toehold on. You know the sort of thing I mean. One aunt saying that she had had a letter from Emily by the afternoon post, and another aunt saying, had she said anything about Fred and Alice? And the first aunt saying, yes, everything was all right about Fred and Alice, because Agnes had now told Edith what Jane had said to Eleanor. All rather mystic. But now an aunt in spectacles said she had met the vicar that evening and the poor old gook was spitting blood because his niece, Miss Purbright, insisted on introducing into the programme of the concert what she described as a knockabout cross-talk act by Police Constable Dobbs and Agatha Werpleston's nephew, Mr Worcester. What a knockabout cross-talk act was, she had no idea. Perhaps you could tell us, Augustus. I was only too glad to have the opportunity of saying a few words, for except for a sort of simpering giggle at the outset I hadn't uttered since joining the party, and I felt it was about time, for Gus's sake, that I came out of the silence. Carry along on these lines much longer, and the whole gang would be at their desks, writing letter to the Bassett, entreating her to think twice before entrusting her happiness to a dumb brick who would probably dish the success of the honeymoon by dashing off in the middle of it to become a Trappist monk. Oh, rather, I said, it's one of those 
pattern Mike things. Two birds come on in green beards, armed with umbrellas, and one bird says to the other bird, Who was that lady I saw you coming down the street with? And the second bird says to the first bird, Faith and big God, that was no lady, that was my wife. And then the second bird busts the first bird over the bean with its umbrella, and the first bird, not to be behind and busts the second bird over the head with his umbrella. And so the long day wears on. It didn't go well. There was a sharp intake of breath from one and all. Very vulgar, said one aunt. Terribly vulgar, said another. Disgustingly vulgar, said Dame Daphne Winkworth. But how typical of Miss Purblight to suggest such a performance at a village concert. The rest of the aunts didn't say, you betcha, or you've got something there, Daff, but their manner suggested these words. Lips were pursed and noses looked down. I began to get on to what Catsmeat had meant when he had said that these females did not approve of Corky. Her stock was plainly down in the cellar, and the market sluggish. Well, I am glad, said the aunt in spectacles, that it is this Mr. Worcester, and not you, Augustus, who is disgracing himself by taking part in this degrading horseplay. Imagine how Madeleine would feel. Madeline would never get over it, said a thin aunt. Dear Madeline, it's so spiritual, said Dame Daphne Winkworth. A cold hand seemed to clutch at my heart. I felt like a gadarene swine that has come within a toucher of doing a nose dive over the precipice. You'll scarcely believe it, but I'd never so much crossed my mind that Madeline Bassett, on learning that her lover had been going about in a green beard, socking policemen with umbrellas, would be revolted to the depth of her soul. Why, dash it, the engagement wouldn't go on functioning for a minute after the news had reached her. You can't be too careful how you stir up these romantic girls with high ideals. A gussie in a green beard would be almost worse than a gussie in the cooler. It gave me a pang to hand in my portfolio, for I'd been looking forward to a sensational triumph, but I know when I'm licked. I resolved that bright and early tomorrow morning word must be sent to Corky that Bertram was out and that she would have to enlist the services of another artiste for the role of Pat. From all I have heard of Mr. Worcester, said an aunt with a beaky nose, continuing the theme, this kind of vulgar foolery would be quite congenial to him. By the way, where is Mr. Worcester? Yes, chimed in the aunt with spectacles. He was to have arrived this afternoon, and he has not even sent a telegram. Oh, he must be a most erratic young man, said a third aunt, who would have been the better for a good facial. Dame Daphne took command of the conversation like a headmistress at a conference of her subordinates. Erratic, she said, is a kindly term. He appears to be completely irresponsible. Agatha tells me that sometimes she despairs of him. She says she often wonders if the best thing would not be to put him in a home of some kind. You may picture the emotions of Bertram on learning that his flesh and blood was in the habit of roasting the pants off him in this manner. One doesn't demand much in the way of gratitude, of course, but when you have gone to the expense and inconvenience of taking an aunt's son to the old vic, you are justified, I think, in expecting her to behave like an aunt who has had her son taken to the old vic, in expecting her, in other words, to exhibit a little decent feeling and a modicum of the live-and-let-live spirit. 
How sharper than a serpent's tooth, I remember Jeeves saying once, it is to have a thankless child, and it isn't a dashed sight better having a thankless aunt. I flushed darkly, and would have drained my glass if it had contained anything restorative, but it didn't. The champagne of a sound vintage was flowing like water elsewhere, Uncle Charlie getting a stiff wrist pouring the stuff, but I, in deference to Gus's known tastes, had been served with that obscene beverage which is produced by putting half an orange on a squeezer and pushing. There seems, proceeded Dame Daphne, in the cold and disapproving voice which in the old days she would have employed when rebuking Maud or Beatrice for smoking gaspers in the shrubbery, to be no end to his escapades. It is not so long ago that he was arrested and fined for stealing a policeman's helmet in Piccadilly. I could put her straight there and did so. That, I explained, was due to an unfortunate oversight. In pinching a policeman's helmet, as of course I don't need to tell you, it is essential before lifting to give a forward shove in order to detach the strap from the officer's chin. This Worcester omitted to do with the results you have described, but I think you ought to take into consideration the fact that the incident occurred pretty late on boat race night, when the best of men are not quite themselves. Still, be that as it may, I said, quickly sensing that I had not got the sympathy of the audience and adroitly changing the subject, I wonder if you know the one about the striptease dancer and the performing flea. Or rather, no, no, not that one, I said, remembering that it was a cont scarcely designed for this gentler sex and the tots. The one about the two men in the train. It's old, of course, so stop me if you've heard it before. A play go on, Augustus. It's about these two deaf men in the train. My sister Charlotte has the misfortune to be deaf. It is a great affliction. The thin aunt bent forward. What is he saying? Augustus is telling us a story, Charlotte. Please go on, Augustus. Well, of course, this had damped the fire a bit, for the last thing one desires is to be supposed to be giving a maiden lady the horse's laugh on account of her physical infirmities, but it was too late now to take a bow and get off, so I had a go at it. Well, there are these two deaf chaps in the train, don't you know, and it stopped at Wembley, and one of them looked out of the window and said, This is Wembley, and the other said, I thought it was Thursday, and the first chap said, Yes, so am I. I hadn't had much hope. Right from the start, something had seemed to whisper in my ear that I was about to lay an egg. I laughed heartily to myself, but I was the only one. At the point where the aunts should have rolled out of their seats like one aunt, there occurred merely a rather ghastly silence as mourners at a deathbed, which was broken by Aunt Charlotte asking what I had said. I would have been just as pleased to let the whole thing drop, but the stout aunts spoke into her ear spacing her syllables carefully. Augustus was telling us a story about two men in a train. One of them said, Today is Wednesday, and the other said, I thought it was Thursday. And the first man said, Yes, so did I. Oh, said Aunt Charlotte. And I suppose that about summed it up. Shortly after this, the browsing and sluicing being concluded, the females arose and filed from the room. Dame Daphne told Esmond Haddock not to be too long over his port and popped off. Uncle Charlie brought the decanter and also popped off. 
and Esmond Haddock and I were alone together, self-wondering how chances were for getting a couple of glassfuls. I moved up to his end of the table, licking the lips. <laughs>